Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist with the one-armed bandit, me, Dr. Bob Weathers. I'm happy to be with you this week. It's great to have you back. I was thinking as I was coming into the studio today how privileged I feel to be able to sit with you and, and uh, share as we do each week. So I'm, I'm very honored to be with you, and I hope that there's value uh, in today's experience together. So thank you for joining me sincerely. I also want to start by thanking also uh, the production staff here in, in the office. To my immediate left is Franz Salvatierra, and Austin Armstrong is hidden behind a screen over there, and uh, uh, Saint uh, Odibon, <laughs> Odilon, Odilon. We decided earlier, Odie is here. <laughs> he's here working with us today. We decided that he's a saint. <laughs> Okay, thank you guys. I think all three of you are saints. <laughs> I hereby anoint all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. They really helped make this happen at a technical level and then getting the word out and uh, also relaying to me questions that you may uh, have as we go through the, uh, the program today. Um, I really invite your interacting with me. And as, if you've been here before, you know that I do my best to honor your questions in real time. So please feel free to submit questions. Know that, that I'll address them and uh, weave them in as best I can into the presentation. Also further want to um, uh, support your uh, liking the show <laughs> online, uh, sharing it with friends. All of this is good for getting the word out here. And uh, it's, it's uh, both kind of self-promotional to say that and also self-preservative. Uh, uh, the more followers we have, the more people engaged it, it uh, it bodes the best in terms of our continuing our program. We appreciate very much your engagement and really recommend you uh, uh, resourcing others to join us as well. While I'm thinking of it, there's uh, speaking of resources, there's a very rich archive now. Went to our 24th uh, consecutive weekly podcast now, which is a half a year, which is amazing, gentlemen. And these are all archived online at Ask an Addiction Specialist, as well as YouTube. So I want to recommend that you go to the Facebook group, go to YouTube, and you can track down all 24 of those uh, uh, presentations. The last half a dozen to maybe even 10 presentations have been centered around the role of shame in addiction and in recovery. Last week's presentation we entitled Healing the Black Hole of Shame, looking at how it is that shame tends to uh, uh, pull us down in ways that no light escapes. And uh, as I shared last week, I want to take that, I want to form a bridge this week. Our topic today is the, the roots of addiction. We'll be looking primarily at psychological roots of addiction, and we'll certainly be focusing on bridging our previous conversations about shame uh, as itself being one of the, the primary roots of addiction. Uh, and uh, we'll be looking today at kind of like assessing or diagnosing the role of uh, psychology, specifically uh, our emotional life in addiction. And this will be part, uh, part and parcel, it's a connected right to next week's presentation, will be, which will be focused on once we've kind of properly diagnosed the illness, so to speak, from a psychological perspective, we'll be looking at very practical ways of healing, uh, 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 healing the shame and other psychological factors that end up uh, kind of initiating our addictions and also sustaining them. So we're, we're looking at uh, good information here, which I believe is liberating. 
and especially in the context of, of addiction, which has so much personal shame and societal stigma attached to it, I think that, that good, effective, scientifically based information can give us a toehold over against uh, shame and stigma. Uh, so we're looking at, at providing good information and also providing good practical applications in terms of how to move forward uh, towards recovery and how to sustain recovery successfully. Uh, this week, as with every week, we'll have a practical exercise or two. They're, they're at the end of our presentation today, but we'll devote some time to that with the goal of getting you involved in, in uh, jotting down some responses to some questions that I'll be asking. And then the, the aim is that for you to, to uh, work with these questions and your answers to elaborate them over the course of the week until we meet next. And so the wish here is to, to kind of seed a process of your own healing and to support whatever other forms of healing you have right now in your recovery process. Saying that to you, I realize I'm speaking to individuals who are seeking recovery from addiction and that's near and dear to my heart. I'm also in recovery from addiction, so I speak firsthand. My background is in psychology, so I'm fairly responsible to and aware of the research in and around addiction recovery, and I cite that thoroughly through our presentations. I'm also speaking to therapists and other recovery uh, 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 workers who uh, are helping professionals, and so I intend for this information to be useful to you and the work that you're doing with uh, those individuals who are in, uh, in recovery. And and then I also realize there's a third audience, and that's the loved ones, those that are affected by addiction, um, uh, by those closest to them. And you're very much a part of our conversation today. I think that good information, not only for the individual seeking recovery, but uh, also for you as loved ones can really be a huge leg up in terms of moving towards uh, uh, long-term sustained healing from addiction. Quite optimistic about uh, what's possible, but I think it starts with good information. And that's where we're, that's where we begin uh, today's presentation. So our topic is the roots of addiction and let's dive in. I, it probably is clear from previous presentations, but I want to assert a point right at the get-go today. And that is that we'll be looking at addictive behaviors and we'll be looking at not only addiction to substance, but also other behaviors. I'll be going more into detail as we flesh out today's presentation that the one angle on them, it's just one angle, but it's a useful angle from a psychological perspective to understand addictive behaviors as attempted antidotes to shame. There's a lot to unpack there, but let's just start with that assertion that addictive behaviors represent an attempted antidote to shame. You might well ask, why shame? Why did I pick shame? Well, we've talked about it a fair bit over the last few weeks, but let me summarize. Shame is the most adverse human emotion. And by adverse, I mean, has the most negative uh, corrosive consequences to the human psyche, even the human body. For example, there's a, a significant research to support the idea that uh, the emotion that is associated with the most elevated stress hormone levels, specifically cortisol. So our stress hormones uh, are secreted and go up the highest in the presence of shame. And when cortisol is high, cortisol levels are high, cortisol is very helpful to activate us, but when it's sustained, it leads to breakdown. It's actually referred to as general adaptation syndrome and it burns out our circuitry uh, physiologically and burns us out mentally and emotionally as well. And so when I say shame is the most adverse human emotion, it's rooted in biology. It's like taking a good thing too far. Uh, 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 our, our fear, our, our, our uh, fear, flight, or uh, freeze response 
uh, our fight, flight, or freeze response, excuse me, which comes from the, the emotional center of the brain, gets activated in the presence of threat. And if shame is a threat, what is it a threat to? Well, let's talk about that for a second. Two sides of a coin, again, summarizing previous conversations, is that shame on the one hand represents our response to a threat to social acceptance. That is, if I feel like that you're gonna reject me, my shame increases, and by the way, so does my cortisol. Before I go any further, let me just talk about that for a second. Why would our stress levels be so linked to a threat to social acceptance? I ask groups that I lead all the time this question, and the answer is typically forthcoming, and it's this. Evolutionarily, we're wired to rely on one another. We're not so evolved that we don't need each other. Uh, uh, in, in, in terms of human history, literally for survival, is that a band together is going to survive longer than an individual. Somebody's reached out and it's Carla who says, hello. Hello, Carla. I can picture you in my mind. It's great to see that you're joining us. Thanks, Carla. Awesome. You've been in these groups, so you know what I'm talking about. In fact, you probably answered this question before, that a threat to social acceptance kicks up my stress level the highest. And the flip side of that coin is a threat to self-esteem. Now, what does this mean? Now, self-esteem is linked, uh, from a psychological research, self-esteem is linked most directly to what's referred to in psychology as self-efficacy. And uh, the shorthand or the translation of self-efficacy is just to be effective at what I do, to do my best, to be able to effectively respond to situations in my life. And when I'm able to do that, it builds my self-esteem. And when I'm incapable of doing that, for whatever reason, my self-esteem suffers. So let's go back to the flip side of the coin here, is that if the central evolutionary imperative is for me to stay linked to you and for you to stay linked to me, then if I'm not capable of doing that, it's gonna undermine at the very roots, the most significant root, let's say, of self-esteem, which is I am failing in terms of being self-efficacious, effective at staying linked to you. And so it's directly linked to my, uh, my survival. In other words, our connection has survival value for me. And if I'm not able to sustain that for whatever reason, if I'm kicked out of the group, marginalized, sent out into the woods, um, I'm likely to perish. So it's a helpful shorthand, I think, or a helpful description of shame is to remember it as, as this two-faced phenomenon. And who of us can't relate to that? All of us have experienced being rejected. Some of us experience uh, abandonment from people that really matter deeply to us, but all of us have experienced being rejected by somebody whose opinion or, or good favor mattered to us. And you can relate to what that feels like, even when that's a threat, what that feels like. And all of us have experienced a variation of feelings of self-regard in terms of feeling good about ourselves versus not feeling so good about ourselves. So that gets us in the zone of shame. Now that's a foundation for talking about shame and I'm gonna come back to that in a few minutes. I wanna shift for just a moment and talk about addiction. And then as I said earlier, our goal here is to link uh, shame and addiction. I keep noticing that I'm using one hand as I talk, it's the oddest thing. I think I'm just one side of a coin right now with one operating hand. By the way, this is shoulder surgery related. It's rotator cuff surgery. It will repair itself, not to worry. It's just taking longer than I thought. So I'm, uh, I'm one-handed Bob today. 
Talking about addiction, let's start by just citing a few facts that are helpful. Somebody's watching us from Lake Forest, which is nearby. I'm happy for you to be joining us. Thank you. Welcome to, uh, welcome to our program. I was just in Lake Forest last night at the Home Depot. <laughs> Let's talk about the prevalence of addiction, and I, I've got a purpose in doing this. <clears throat> the latest research suggests that in the American adult population, one out of four individuals have addict addiction to substance. So let me define substance in the way that it's defined in the research. is It's, uh, it's inclusive of alcohol, nicotine, and other negative psychoactive drugs. <laughs> I have to kind of get up that all right there. Uh, so I'm not including caffeine here. Uh, you know, there's a phenomenon called hypercaffeinism, which is drinking too much caffeine, and that can mess people up pretty badly, but it's uh, relatively rare in the general population. And so I'm not including caffeine, Why? Uh, because caffeine is a psychoactive drug for sure. There's plenty of drugs that we take that are, you know, for medications and so on that are not psychoactive. So we're talking about drugs that change your, your cognitions and your emotional state and so on. And we're looking at those specifically that with uh, enduring use have... Uh, negative or deleterious consequence. And so alcohol, nicotine, and then all the other drugs that, that, that we can imagine, uh, the opiates, uh, the, the hallucinogens, the stimulants, the sedatives, and so on, that uh, we're prone to be addicted to. Um, so 25% of us in the American population right now are addicted to substance. I have to tell you that for me, that was a pretty alarming statistic. I, I, uh, I've worked uh, in psychology for 30 or 40 years, and I've worked in addiction specifically for around 15 years, including my own addictive behaviors, and to realize how prevalent that is, it uh, anything that's one out of four people uh, ought to get our attention. I think it is beginning to get our attention here nationally. Now, there's recent research that looked at uh, non-drug-oriented addictive behaviors. So there's addiction to substance and there's addiction to behaviors. Well, what are those behaviors? Well, we could list an infinite list of behaviors that we can be addicted to. And I'm going to talk more about what that means in just a second. But just for some examples of behaviors that we're addicted to, this could include uh, gambling. This could include eating. This could include variations of sexual addiction, including addictions to pornography. This could include... Uh, 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 overspending, sometimes it's referred to as shopping addiction, uh, certainly can include uh, overwork in terms of what's referred to sometimes as workaholism. Uh, in this day and age with social media and so on, there's now a significant, uh, attention, a significant attention being given to internet addiction. And so let's unpack what addiction means. Uh, well, before I do that, let me just cite this. In a recent study, a national study, again, across the American adult population, 90% of American adults uh, responded by saying they had at least one behavioral addiction going on right now. Uh, at least one, uh, oftentimes more than one. And as I sometimes joke, and I've mentioned here before, I think the other 10% didn't quite understand the question. Uh, and uh, Or maybe were too, uh, too ashamed to endorse the, uh, that they were addicted. I'm only suggesting that, that uh, addiction is commonplace if we open it up to include not only drug or substance-related addiction, but also behavioral addictions. And so let's talk about the word addiction and, talk, and, and, uh, and, uh, and look at addiction from different perspectives. The word addiction originates in the Latin word addictus, and it simply means slave in Latin. I like this, uh, this etymology, this root of addiction, because it, then it opens it up to looking at ways that we as humans are enslaved. Um, 
there's so much of a pejorative or, or shaming or stigmatizing uh, response to, to addiction and being an addict, being even in, being a recovering addict has huge stigma around it societally. And if we could come up with other ways of deepening into what it means to be addicted, it means to be enslaved. And there's not a one of us that doesn't have versions of enslavement that would qualify as addiction, or at least close to 100% of us know what this is about. So what it is, is what I'm wanting to suggest here is that addiction is a universal human condition. And uh, why is that important to state? It means we're all in the soup together. And uh, I think what it can do is maybe open up a dialogue that's not otherwise possible. One of the central barriers to those that are suffering from substance-related addiction, uh, they're getting help, is the tremendous stigma around it. To admit to oneself, it's referred to in the 12-step 12, programs as denial. Well, there's good reason to deny because first of all, it feels awful to acknowledge to oneself uh, that one is addicted. There's a blow to self-esteem. And then to admit this to others is to admit that, uh, that there's something broken, wrong, or defective about one because of the attitude societally. So if we can hold addiction with more grace, with more compassion, and I think one start of that is to realize that we're all in this together. It's a universal human condition. Now, I want to talk about addiction for just a moment, the way that psychiatry talks about addiction. I'm going to improvise on the DSM. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's used uh, in psychiatry and psychology in the mental health disciplines. It's also used in the recovery-oriented disciplines. Um, uh, when I started graduate school in... Uh, September of 1979, in January of 1980, the DSM came out in its third edition. And that was what I studied all the way through graduate school. My very first course in graduate school on psychopathology, we used the DSM-3. Well, it's gone through multiple revisions since then. It's now the DSM-5, and it's gone through uh, sub-revisions uh, ever since. And so there's been multiple revisions. So we're now in the DSM-5. When I started graduate school, the DSM-2 was a little pamphlet like this with a spiral binding. The DSM-1, they didn't call it the DSM-1 because it was the only DSM. The first DSM was a little pamphlet. <laughs> I remember my professor brought it to graduate school. Here's a little pamphlet on all the diagnoses. You're diagnosing different so-called mental disorders. The DSM-2 is a little spiral bound thing. The DSM-3 is a big sucker. It was like this. And it's not gotten slimmer. It's gotten bigger and bigger. So the DSM-5 is about yay big right now. And it catalogs every imaginable psychologically related disorder. Everything from autism to uh, schizophrenia, from uh, depressions to anxieties, and included in the DSM are substance use disorders, which is now the term that the DSM use, uses for uh, addiction. Um, I prefer the word addiction because of its etymology, but diagnostically, substance use disorders is the terminology that's used nowadays. So I'm going to stick with addiction, but I'm going to use the DSM's basic terminology around this. And I'm going to mention two things that help define addiction, let's say again, from a psychiatric perspective. One is that you can't stop doing something that hurts you. You can't stop doing something that uh, has negative consequences. And where does it have negative consequences? Typically, addiction hamstrings two areas, primarily my work, my capacity to work in the world, and my relationships. Underlying all of this is the damage that addiction does to my brain and my biology. And so I can't stop doing something that's uh, uh, really negatively affecting my capacities brain-wise to function in whatever work I do, if I'm a student, 
however I function in the world, and definitely affects my relationships, maybe most profoundly, not maybe, most profoundly those that are most uh, core to me, those that are most uh, important to me, my most intimate relationships. And so if that's addiction, what we're suggesting today is that shame is a primary root of addiction. I'm going to say more about that. I'm going to unpack that also right now. Why would I say that? That shame is a primary root of addiction. But before I do that, let me mention this. this is one of the ironies. I was just meeting with a group earlier today, and we were talking about this. I asked the group, I said, what does it mean, you guys, to, to acknowledge that with addiction, the poor get poorer? The poor get poorer. This was in the context of our talking about psychological roots of addiction today. We had a whole board full of, of uh, client responses to my question is, what do you understand to be the root of addiction in your own life? Everything, the very top one was spiritual malady, lack of connection, fear, loneliness, meaninglessness, wanting to fit in, wanting to connect. We had a whole list there. And, and I said, what does it mean that the poor get poor? And what we came to in the group was that everything that was on the board, all the lists on the board, is that we turn to addiction to help alleviate, even if temporarily, these sources of suffering in our lives. And the irony, the tragedy of addiction is that it typically makes them worse. I only felt like I was lonely until I experienced the isolation that typically follows, especially on severe addiction. I only, I, only, I only felt like I had a spiritual problem in terms of accessing meaning or value or purpose in my life until I did something with addiction that took out my frontal lobes, my brain's capacity to be able to even examine values and meaning and purpose, and so on it goes. And so uh, the sad part is that with shame, which is, again, my fear of social disconnection and my loss of self-esteem, is that shame feeds right into this in a very negative, vicious cycle so that we spiral downwards in addiction. And so we start off probably suffering, poor, so to speak, and we get poorer. It does beg the question, in light of the fact that the poor get poorer in addiction and in shame, as affected by shame, why can't we just say no? Why can't we just say no? Who would sign up for, for getting poorer? Well, herein lies the rub, you guys, is if we look at addictive behaviors again as antidotes to shame, if, if my addiction is my way of dealing with my sense of being alone, my sense of being a failure, my sense of disconnection, if, if that's my attempted solution and we take that away, then what am I left with? And so what you're doing is you're taking away something that's a, a over time taken on survival value for me. And so you can ask me to say no, I can try to say no, but the fact is my body and my brain will continue to crave that which has been sought uh, for the sake of living. And so it's, it, it creates a, a, a horrible kind of impasse for all of us who've experienced addiction. And if you've experienced addiction in terms of, of the stuckness or the dead end of it, and the incapacity to say no, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. One author in the field of addiction says, I see a question, I'm gonna get to that in just a moment. One author in the field of addiction says, you know, you, an addict can choose right now not to drink, 
can choose right now not to shoot up. But what an addict can't do is choose not to crave. And eventually the craving, which is, is a, a, a brain response to long-term addiction, the craving will win the day because it, it will over time trump or hijack uh, any other uh, impulse, even towards health. Let me pause for a second and read a question that's come in. Do I think that there is a brain biology or brain chemistry root to shame? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. It's a good question. Thank you. I think I know who asked this question. Yeah. Yeah. Even though today I'm focusing on the psychological roots of shame, there's nothing, uh, there's no psychological phenomenon that doesn't have its mirror in, in, uh, in, in, in terms of the biological realm, specifically the brain, uh, specifically brain biology. I was thinking about it driving here today from, I was working at Beginnings Treatment Center and I'm coming to our podcast and I was thinking about a dissertation that I chaired uh, almost 25 years ago at a local university. And it was a student who did his dissertation. I remember the dissertation very well. He was getting his doctorate in clinical psychology and his, his dissertation, it was, it was Juan Perez. I'm happy to, to, to name Juan Perez. He was a great student and he's worked locally in the field of rehabilitation. His dissertation was working with patients who had been, uh, many of them had been gang members and had been um, experienced brain trauma owing to gunshot wounds. So they, they experienced brain injuries, spinal injuries, and so on. And this was his work at Rancho's, Rancho Los Amigos, was a, a neurorehabilitative center up in the Downey area, as I recall, and it still may be there. Juan did his dissertation on this, and, and he was looking at the intersection between what happens psychologically when a gang member loses his capacity to walk or other significant uh, physical functions, or even loses the capacity to think and operate cognitively owing to uh, uh, damage to the brain from a gunshot, how does that affect the psychological well-being uh, uh, of, of, of the, of the uh, survivor? And obviously that's a radical, radical, uh, 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 tragic situation. And one was looking at that in relationship to the biological factors of how does this injury affect the biology of the individual uh, in terms of the capacity to move, in terms of the capacity to be uh, autonomous, etc. And I remember this formula. This is what I was thinking on the way driving over today, and I, it's it's uh, it's related very much to this question: is that one's uh, summary from his dissertation was this, you know, several hundred page doctoral dissertation was that when you look at the relationship of brain biology to the psychological realm, and it certainly applies to this topic of shame, is that biology has, this, these are his exact terms, biology has primacy, or no, biology has priority. Biology has priority and psychology has supremacy. That was it. Biology has priority, psychology has supremacy. And all he meant by that is that without a regulated biology, psychology falls on its face. To have a robust psychology with integrity requires to have an intact biology. And if you pull out the foundation of all of our psychological well-being, which is rooted in, in our bodies and, and uh, uh, oftentimes centered in our brains, then all the rest is affected by that. So to conclude just for now with this, it's a profound question. There's a lot that could be said about this. For example, if I've got a, if I've got a brain that's deficient in certain uh, um, uh, 
regulating uh, uh, neurotransmitters, and I'll pick two for example. If I've got a brain that's not generating enough dopamine or enough serotonin to keep me, me in, a, in a state of relative equilibrium and a sense of at least fundamentally reliable well-being, then uh, I probably am not going to present to the world as that uh, attractive. I'm not gonna, uh, people will tend to move away from me because if I'm depressed or anxious, for example, that tends not to be attractive to people. And so there's that. And the fact is, is that I'm not feeling well. I'm probably gonna be not going to be functioning near my optimum. And so there's really not going to be support internally or even externally for, for sustaining good self-esteem. And we could, say, we could say all of this in this particular scenario is rooted in a biological decrement. If, if I have a deficit of, of, of serotonin and or dopamine, that it's going to manifest subjectively. See, shame is a subjective emotion, subjective phenomenon. Dopamine and serotonin aren't. They're not, you can't, you don't wake up in the morning. Franz doesn't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm having a good serotonin kind of day. Odie doesn't go, wow, my dopamine's flowing today. Doesn't go that way. We don't have access to that. But we definitely have access to our subjective feelings, which may be secondary to Franz's dopamine level or Odie's serotonin level or whatever. And so it, it's just to suggest that we're looking maybe again at two sides of a coin. From a biological external perspective, we can look at the chemistry of our brains and how that's functioning. This comes up all the time right in the heart of addiction and recovery from addiction because the first many months of, of, of recovery are oftentimes affected by the brain getting regulated again to where it has anything close to a normal sustaining biology. And during that time, psychologically, both cognitively and emotionally, I'll add behavior in here in terms of impulsivity and so on. All of that is radically undermined until it gets stabilized. And that's led by biology. Again, biology has priority. Psychology has supremacy. Why do I say psychology, or why did Juan say that psychology has supremacy? Is that we can do a lot to regulate our biologies if we can get our psychology working for us. And so, for example, when we do mindfulness exercises here in meditation and so on, that's something I can choose to do that quickly enough will have fairly significant biological ramifications. And so there's a way that my psychology can work in my favor. If it has a, if, if I start from a well enough basis and begin to, let's pick this example. Let's say that I'm actively addicted. If there's some part of my brain that can turn the corner and begin to move towards recovery, some part of my brain that's able to commit to that, that's where my psychology comes in and makes choices that will be in support of getting my body regulated so that I'll, I'll, the rich will get richer so that my brain and my body will, will begin to restore themselves. So I hope that that's the beginning of a response. I see these as, as uh, completely intersecting. You can look at previous presentations that we've talked about. I introduced this in terms of a holistic approach to looking at addiction and recovery uh, rooted in what's referred to as integral theory. And in some of our early presentations in this series, we address this where uh, there's every reason to include biology, and psychology, and spirituality, and culture, and societal, social systems. There's every reason to include a, a multiplicity of, of interactions when we talk about addiction or any other human phenomenon, and certainly around shame. Shame has uh, internal uh, uh, manifestations. It certainly has externally observable manifestations. It's a very complex phenomenon for sure. We're, so when we focus today on the psychological roots of addiction, we're really looking on the interior subjective aspects of shame, which is not to suggest there aren't biochemical reasons. There absolutely are. There's another comment or question that's come up here. Hi, Bob. The more I look at how shame feels and the shame thoughts, the more it seems like 
that chronic depression anxiety, the more it seems like the chronic depression anxiety I've experienced much of my life. I think shame can be a state experience where I, in a moment, uh, Austin can say something to me that, that leaves me feeling shamed and it could be uh, transitory. It just happens in the moment and I'm affected by that and, and, and I recover from that. But particularly, and we talked about this last week, looking at the roots of shame, the psychological, the developmental roots of shame, particularly if what's been laid down developmentally doesn't require just being developmental because it can happen in adulthood as well. When I'm in a chronic situation that, that uh, evokes shame experience for me, where I feel chronically invalidated, where I'm always at risk of being excluded, where I don't feel good about myself relationally or vocationally or otherwise, is that chronically uh, shame endured over a period of time, I think will manifest as some variation or combination of depression and anxiety. I would include addiction as well in terms of the distress. Depression, anxiety, and addiction. It, uh, it, I had one client, and I've mentioned this before, who said, Bob, there's none of us that can barbecue in our own adrenaline. <clears throat> And what she was talking about was that you can't sustain uh, this kind of high cortisol. And so it will break down the system and it will manifest as depleted resources such as depression and anhedonia, the incapacity to experience pleasure. It'll manifest as anxiety, which is being on high red alert all the time, which is the fight or flight phenomenon that goes hand in hand with shame and cortisol. Uh, and it certainly will manifest as addiction for many of us, I would say most of us, uh, uh, because that's, that may be our only, uh, that becomes our go-to response to chronic depression or anxiety. So I really, I really, my heart's out to you and I can certainly relate personally and I do believe this is the case. It's almost like we're looking at, you can look at depression or anxiety from the outside. You can medicate me. You can medicate me to uh, address the organic or the biological aspects of depression or anxiety within me, and there's good use to that. It relates to the previous question, which is, it's addressing the biological roots of shame, for example. But as I'll be arguing further on, and I'll continue on here, I'll come to it a little bit later, it likely won't be sufficient to do just that, because we have to address the interior, the subjective as well. And I'll be talking about that in a few minutes, is that uh, 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 it needs to be a full-bodied response over time for sure. The biological uh, is, is imperative, but I also believe that the psychological and even the spiritual must be addressed if shame or chronic shame in the form of depression or anxiety is to abate. And this is right in the core of addiction, is that you, I, um, I have an image I'm gonna share in a few minutes of a volcano with lava flowing out of it. And so I'm gonna save my comments till then. That image comes to my mind right now. You can't stop the lava flow. There'll be no end to the lava flow if you don't go to the core of the volcano, the source of, of, of the lava. And that's the way I feel about shame is that you can keep treating the, uh, the uh, consequences of shame. For example, manifesting as depression manifesting as anxiety, even manifesting as addictive behaviors. But if you don't get to the core of that, there'll be no end to that depression or that anxiety or that addiction. It requires healing at a, at a more uh, pivotal or, or foundational level rather than just symptomatic. It's referred to as symptom reduction. Symptom reduction. I don't know if you've ever seen that game. What's the name of that game? Whack-a-mole? Whack-a-mole? You... <laughs> I actually got this recently in the last year. I got it on my iPhone. There's a whack-a-mole game because I wanted to see how it works. And uh, so you can download whack-a-mole for free, I think, <laughs> as an app. And up pops a mole. A mole, I guess, that you have to whack. 
And as soon as you whack it, another one pops up and it gets faster and faster until basically you, you barbecue in your own adrenaline. <laughs> I think it's like that with these symptoms that we're talking about is you just, you can keep whacking the symptoms, but unless we get down to a, unless we get underneath that board and figure out what's going on with those moles, there'll be no end to them. So, so let's talk about how it is that, that, that addiction serves uh, as antidote to, uh, uh, to shame. I think the, the antidote functions of addiction can be summarized in three ways. We use drugs, and I broaden this to include our addictions. We use our beha addictive behaviors to self-medicate for purposes of numbing out, getting high, feeling connected. These aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they're quite overlapping. So if you think about it in terms of shame, who of us can endure shame ongoing? We can't. If I can find a way to anesthetize myself, you're doggone well, I'll do that. You know I'll do that. Because shame is a depressing emotion, it wears us down. If I can find some way just to have a momentary high as respite from shame's erosion, I'll choose for that as well. And shame, by definition, isolates us. You remember, a threat to social acceptance. And so if I can find some way to feel more connected to others, even temporarily, through addictive behaviors, I'll choose for that as well. It's no accident that we call our addictions our fixes. Our fixes. I'm going to get my fix. And these are fixes, uh, albeit temporary. These are fixes. A lot of my work in working with those in recovery, and a lot of my work in my own recovery, has been spent around illuminating the long-term downside to what are admittedly temporary fixes. They work well, oftentimes, in the short term, especially initially. People wouldn't come back to substance and other addictions if it didn't serve some purpose, if it wasn't effective. The fact is, it's the longer-term downside that uh, is so costly. And I'd like to summarize how I respond to this in the work that I do. I think there's multiple entry points into talking about the downside of addiction. I work primarily from three perspectives around addressing this. And all of these come from my background in psychology. The first is I bring in brain science. I look at, at what happens to the brain, the addictive brain long-term in terms of a numbed pleasure response, in terms of increasing and uncontrollable cravings, and in terms of decreased impulse and cognitive control. These are just some examples. This, this happens predictably across all addictions, substance or behavioral. And so I look at that. I just think it's important for us to take an honest look at, at the downside because um, there is a temporary upside for many of us, maybe all of us who've been addicted. Another perspective I take is informed by the current kind of reigning theory uh, in, in psychology, uh, uh, in terms of clinical work, is attachment theory. And attachment theory is based primarily in the last 20 to 30 years of looking at what happens to us as human beings when we're out of connection with one another. Attachment equals connection, equals intimacy. I would say equals love. Is that it's, as we've talked about earlier in terms of evolution, uh, we're, we're so hardwired to stay connected to one another that that when that's uh, imperiled, we suffer. And I, I see attachment theory as one way to talk into the long-term downside of addiction because, because addiction for most increasingly isolates a person uh, uh, 
for reasons of, of uh, if I'm high, I'm less likely to have an authentic connection with you. And if I'm using, I'm less likely to sustain a connection with those that in my life that are loved ones that are not using because they will tend to isolate themselves from me. They'll reject me. Just talked to somebody today whose entire family has written him off. He came up to me during the break in our group today and said, Dr. Bob, I'm sorry because I'm so preoccupied today. And I said, thank you for telling me. I said, what's got you preoccupied? And he said, we had a family group earlier today and we were talking about what happens uh, in addiction to our relationships to our family. And, and he said, what came clear to me is that my entire family, uh, they're done with me. And he said, I, uh, I just put it out of my mind. I, I can't even deal with it. But he says, in order to compartmentalize it, that was his word for it, in order to compartmentalize it, I can't really even show up today. And that's the way it goes for us when we, when we disconnect from pain in our lives. Sometimes we're doing it necessarily. I think he is. It makes it really hard to uh, to uh, select where you want to be connected and not. Uh, Freud, the the kind of the, the the founder of modern psychotherapy, put it this way. He said, "Repression is non-selective. If I choose to repress in one area, it will show up in other areas of my life. We're not so able to be so selective in how we repress things." So if I look at brain science, I look at attachment theory, I also look at existential psychology, which is a big fat word for this. It's looking at what happens in addiction around you living true to why you're here on this planet. So what are the values that guide you? Where do you find meaning in your life? What's your purpose for being here? And uh, I think that there's a tremendous uh, uh, cost to that, obviously, in addiction. And we speak deeply into that in many of the, 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 uh, the clients I work with, in the, both in individuals and in groups. And so the costs to our brains, the cost to our relationships, the cost to our, our potentials are huge. And so I bring that in. Now, I mentioned this earlier, and I'm going to come back to it now. Left brain information including my telling you about brain science, attachment theory, and existential psychology. Left brain information is really useful. I think it's necessary. And as I said earlier, I think good information is liberating. But I also want to argue that it's not sufficient. And why is it not sufficient? Why is left brain uh, uh, information not sufficient? Well, if we're focusing about shame right now for just one moment, shame is not primarily a left brain phenomenon. What is the left brain? The left brain is the part of us that's logical, it's verbal, it, it's analytic, and we all need that. Now, our right brain, on their hand, focuses on connectedness, on emotion, on intuition, on the not so logical. on what we find beautiful and meaningful. Relationships are primarily right brain to right brain phenomena. If you think about this for a second, the example we use in today's group, if someone tells you that they love you, the left brain response to that would be, they love me. It's a, it's a language thing. I love you means they love me. But if that's communicated in the context of unloving behaviors, whether it's in the moment, in terms of tone of voice, or whether it's over, over time in terms of abuse or abandonment or other negative features, someone can tell you left brain that they love you and your right brain is going boop, 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 boop. This is not love, this is not love. And that will almost always trump the left brain. Uh, one author puts it this way, our, our minds or our egos can lie to us 
Words can lie to us, but our bodies don't. And so our body will register something wrong with this, uh, with this picture. Well, I'm going to suggest that shame is rooted, because it's rooted in relationship, as we talked about last week, it's rooted primarily in non-attuned, oftentimes abusive relationships, where we're not seen, not valued. In fact, what we experience is being invaded or abandoned, is that those experiences register primarily in the right brain. And so you could read lots of books on shame and not get over shame. The healing of shame, if shame is rooted in relationships, which is a right brain phenomenon, it follows that the healing of shame must also be primarily right brain. Now the image of the volcano. Now the image of the volcano. I have to look over Franz's shoulder because the, the subtitle, shame. You remember I talked about that we need to go down to the source of the volcano to, to stop the lava flow? By the way, isn't that a great picture? <laughs> If the lava flow is shame, how do we get down to the source of the volcano and cap that sucker off? Well, it requires, it requires getting down into what we talked about last week, what we introduced last week, which is the black hole of shame, and beginning find, begin to find ways to shore up the self that's been, that's been injured and continues to be injured by, by uh, uh, abuse and abandonment. A neglect in our lives and how we've internalized that as blueprints and beginning to shift those blueprints. And I believe that only happens in the context of compassionate, attuned relationship. <clears throat> that can be a good friend, that can be a good therapist, a good coach, a good group. As I mentioned today in the group, is that uh, in the group that I led, is that you begin to get how imperative it is that you choose for oxygenating relationships, that you don't give away the goal to relationships that are not nourishing you, because we will not survive, for those of us that are in recovery from addiction, we will not survive in an oxygen-deprived environment. Many of us have gotten used to partial oxygen. We can get by with an oxygen-poor situation, but it's not sustainable, nor is it life-giving. And so uh, it begins oftentimes in therapy, working with somebody who can hopefully be with you in a non-shaming, facilitative way down in the heart of the volcano and be with you through anger and resentment and pain, including incapacitating shame, be with you in a way that continues to affirm and attune to you at the worst of it. And it's a rare friend that can do that, but it's really what the specialized training of therapists and coaches are. Uh, are about that's really that's it's it's they're like surgeons and their scalpels are meant to dive down into the heart of the wound my dad was a, a physician and a surgeon when i was growing up and uh, it's an instance i've shared before and i might have shared it here in a previous podcast i have a memory of growing up i was about five or six years old and my dad was the doctor in a county we lived in uh, for a couple of years in Southern Oregon. And he was the physician for this county, actually two counties. He was the only physician in the whole area. His clinic was the only medical clinic, but he also served as the veterinarian. There were no veterinarians. And so uh, people would bring animals to dad's clinic. Well, the way it went in those days is it was a 24 seven job. And so I remember people bringing animals into our living room for my dad to fix them. I can remember him, uh, there was a dog that had gotten his leg caught in a combine that they used to harvest wheat and it had broken his leg. And I can remember my dad, I can remember this so visibly, my dad putting a cast on a dog's leg in our living room. And uh, that's kind of what I grew up with. Well, there's another situation where a farmer came in and he had an infection in his left arm. It was running down the top of his arm and it was all swollen up. And my dad brought him into the uh, living room. It was at home, it was a home visit. 
except our home. And I don't know why I was there, but I watched this and I'm not one of those people that was meant to watch this. Dad took out a scalpel and lanced this infection and expressed a bunch of uh, uh, the infective uh, liquids in this guy's arm. And as dad was doing this, my dad was quite a brain. <laughs> he wasn't the most sensitive dad, but he saw him sitting there, a six-year-old watching this stuff go down. And I remember my dad saying to him, now, now, Bobby, I think dad wanted me to be a doctor and I didn't end up becoming that kind of doctor. Dad looked at me and he says, now, Bobby, this is called refreshing the wound. And I'm sure little Bobby goes, what's that mean, daddy? And he said, refreshing the wound is this guy had, had gotten a cut and he had tried to fix it himself with bandages or whatever, and it hadn't sealed antiseptically. And so it actually had gotten infected. And so dad had to go back into that wound, lance it open, express the pus, etc., and then re-suture it. So dad stitched up this guy's arm and he went on his way and apparently got better. I didn't see it back in our living room again. And that's what I think of with this lava flow is that you have to refresh the wound. You have to go back into where the pain was, express the pain that was there, including the tremendous grief that goes with the disappointments we've experienced in our lives developmentally that have led to shaming blueprints. You need to go into those in order to restructure our blueprints to become unshaming blueprints. And, uh, and so one way to think about that is refreshing the wound. I wonder if you'll remember this story like I do. <laughs> I hope it's useful to you and I haven't, hope I haven't grossed you out. Let me leave us, we're gonna finish here. Uh, we started a little bit late today. I wanna take about five more minutes, but let me leave us with an exercise here, okay? Take a piece of paper or if you're writing on a tablet or a computer, write down one of your current addictions. <clears throat> if it's a substance, it'll be, it'll be uh, simple. If it's the behavior, just be honest and write down something you're addicted to. And I want to leave you with this homework uh, for this week. And that is, I want you to do this. I want you to trace that addictive uh, behavior. I want you to trace that as you're able to shame. And you remember how we define shame? A threat to social acceptance, the flip side of which is a threat to self-esteem. And see how shame informs and maybe be lie at the root of the volcano. Maybe lie at the root there in terms of your addiction. So experience of, of being rejected, abandoned, neglected, a threat to social acceptance, being kicked out of a group, <clears throat> not fitting in. And the twin aspect of that, which is feeling like there's something wrong about you, something bad about you, there's something broken about you. Unfixable, hopeless. <clears throat> I want you to do that work this week, and I, I invite you to do that for the value that it gets to be. What we're doing is we're beginning to link this mysterious kind of overwhelming phenomenon of addiction, which, which takes over our brains, <clears throat> and beginning to link it meaningfully to psychological origins, psychological roots. I think there's value in writing this out. I think there's value in talking this out with trusted people in your life, whether it's a therapist or a self-support group. The value is, is moving it out of being the unspoken into the spoken, concretizes it. It actually moves it more up into the frontal lobes of the brain, which are the executive center of our brain. Uh, any decisions that we make about behavior in our life will come out of the frontal lobes. In a nutshell, addiction is a subcortical phenomenon. It, it shuts off our frontal lobes. 
And so we're left without a rudder, we're left without a navigator. And so what we're trying to do is reclaim that and build those muscles. And you're participating today in working with concepts and now looking inside to look at your own addiction, being honest, writing it down. I think there's great value in writing stuff down. Writing it down, speaking it <clears throat> is a way of moving it from the subcortex, which is the emotional and the addictive center of the brain, moving it up to the frontal cortex from which we make moral decisions, from which we have compassion, from which we have the roots of our spirituality and psychological well-being. Um, uh, what we're going to do is to shore that up, and this is an exercise to do that. What we'll be doing is moving from today's conversation about the roots of addiction. Think of that image of the volcano, down in the volcano, the core of the volcano. Next week, what we're going to be talking about is the way out of shame. <clears throat> We're going to be introducing practical ways out of shame. You can't move beyond something if you don't understand it to begin with. And so we're looking at the foundations of, of our shame here and how it links to our addictions. And I'm assuming in this conversation that if we're honest with ourselves, we can look at any behaviors that we have that we can't stop that are not serving us, not serving us in terms of our potential, not serving us in terms of our connection to one another, not serving us, not serving us as we move out in the world in terms of work and school and so on. So it's identifying those honestly and then beginning to look at how those are informed by this phenomenon of shame. My sense of it is if you're honest and give it some thoughtful uh, reflection, you'll find connections between the addiction in your life and the shame in your life. <clears throat> Which is to suggest that, that it's not that addicts, including those in recovery, that shame comes on the heels of addiction alone. It's actually shame actually preceded the addiction and actually uh, anticipated it, required it in a sense. You remember how we talked about addictive behaviors as the antidote to shame. And so it was a response to shame. And that particular response long-term actually uh, 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 creates a cascade of increasing shame. And so that's the idea of the poor getting poorer. And we're wanting to break that cycle. So naming it like we've done today is, is key to that. I appreciate the questions that have come in today. I invite you to continue to share questions with me uh, during the week. Uh, I had some questions this week and I responded in our um, Ask an Addiction Specialist Facebook group. I'm happy to respond. I encourage you to continue to reflect on this because every moment that you spend reflecting on this is a way of building this muscle that we're talking about, which is the, the, uh, the, the single strongest long-term antidote to shame is to build, is, is to building, is, is a building frontality, frontality, frontal cortex functions. If the, if, if the addictive brain has its foot on the accelerator, the brakes will only come from the non-addictive brain potential in the frontal cortex. <clears throat> and that frontal cortex, by the way, is vastly encouraged by uh, being in the presence of others with fully operating frontal cortexes. This is referred to in um, psychology as co-regulation. We share brains. And so my conversation with you today, your conversation today with people that are important in your life to support you is uh, yields uh, a pure gold in terms of uh, protecting your sobriety and developing a sustaining foundation for your sobriety. So today we talked about the roots of addiction, next week the way out of addiction. Um, any final questions from anybody in the audience? <clears throat> I encourage you to write those down. If I, if I get them after the, the session today, I'll respond this week. Encourage you to come back uh, next week for sure. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, let me mention a couple things uh, in closing. 
Uh, I have a website, drbobweathers.com, that you can write me directly on the website. I think the very last tab on the top is how to contact me. And uh, individuals here do contact me there. I encourage you to do that. And those are sent directly to my email and I'll respond to you personally. So I want to recommend that you go there. There's a lot of resources there. There are, uh, these podcasts uh, are there and I'm going to include more of them uh, in the next few weeks, as well as this last year's podcast in uh, the journey of integral recovery. That's another podcast that I've done weekly for the last year. And there are a ton of other resources. They're all freely given for you to review podcasts, blog uh, posts, etc., that are meant as resource for you uh, in your own recovery process. If you work in recovery, I think you'll find a lot of useful information there. If you're the loved one of somebody in recovery, ditto the same. So encourage you to go there. Encourage you to utilize this Facebook site, uh, Ask an Addiction Specialist. Want to also encourage that you go to YouTube and look up Ask an Addiction Specialist. We have all of our, our podcast uh, um, archive there. And I believe they're also housed at beginnings treatment centers here locally in Santa Ana. So you have multiple pathways to contacting me and then catching up on this information. Really encourage you to digest this information. I meant what I said earlier. I think this information is important. I even believe much of it's necessary, an understanding of, of what goes on in addiction and recovery, whether we're talking about addiction or shame or how to recover from all of that. I also feel like that it's imperative that, especially if you're in recovery, that you seek that you seek support, uh, either in a treatment program uh, or a self-help program or contacting an individual uh, uh, therapist or recovery coach, some way to support you in the process because we really need each other uh, uh, to make it. I call this plural recovery. We recover in plural. It's really not an individual isolated um, uh, autonomous kind of decision I can make. I really need good support from you and we need that from each other. So blessings to you. Have a good week. Thanks again for joining us today. I'm really happy to, to have met you guys today and I'll meet you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye for now. Bob Weathers signing off.